Welcome into the ultimate NBA season preview. I'm your host, Tanitra Batiste. And in this six episode series, we're going to go around the NBA, getting insight and analysts from all 30 of our Locked On NBA shows with local coverage in a way no one else can. So in episode five, we are taking a look at teams where the future is a little unsure. We got Locked On Hawks, Brad Rowland. We got Locked On Bulls. Pat the designer, we're going to just call him Pat for now, Locked on Rockets, Jackson Gatlin, Locked on Magic, Philip Rossman Reich, and to bring us up in the rear, Locked on Jazz, David Locke. So, Brad, we're going to start down south with you, with the Hawks. We now have had one full year of the Trey-DJ combo, Trey Young and DeJounte Murray, and that pairing. So what have you learned from that pairing in that first year and also kind of what you've seen them do in this offseason to get ready for the upcoming season? It's the ultimate question because last year was kind of uh, incomplete, I would say, for the Hawks. They didn't uh, improve in the way that you might expect or that you might have hoped for if you were the Hawks after making that kind of big splash move. Normally, if you're in the play-in and you mortgage the future to some extent by trading a bunch of draft picks for a guy, you don't want to go back to the play-in. And that's where they were two years in a row. So that's kind of the incomplete. Um, Individually, those two guys played okay. Neither one of them were fantastic by their standards a season ago. But I think that, honestly, the big thing with the Hawks overall, and it pertains to this particular question, is the addition of a full season of Quinn Snyder. And they're putting a lot of their eggs in that basket to kind of unlock not only the guards, but also just the entire thing in Atlanta. All right, I'm going to start digging in right now. I love it. (laughs) Brad Rowland is like the smartest basketball guy in our network. Brad Roland is like one of the most numbers-based guy in our network. <laughs> Brad Roland just completely ignored the fact that when Trey Young and DeJounte Murray were on the floor together last year, they were only a plus one. That's true. <laughs> they were only a plus one. Five this, teams is, are this, is, this is accurate. Um, the thing, it's like, what, what you could also say they were like a minus six, seven with Trey off the court and DeJounte on. And that was the whole theory of the case, really, in a lot of ways, was that Murray was supposed to solve the problem of what has when Trey leaves the floor and that unequivocally did not happen. Um, Trey and DeJounte together were not, as David points out, fantastic, but the real issue was still the same issue it's been for the last three or four years. When Trey, when Trey sits, they have no plan and uh, that's not going to be sustainable, but David's right. They got to be better than plus one with, with, with those two guys or nothing else matters. With, with David and Brad going back and forth like this, it's like a battle of like numbers oriented Titans from our network. I love that these two guys are on the same round table together. It's all right. said with the utmost respect, by the way. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right, Brad, because the thought was, you know, Kevin Herter departs. And so, you you know, you kind of lose him from the second unit slash first unit. And then, of course, Danilo Gallinari parts as well. So you're kind of looking to see kind of who's going to be that guy, not just to partner with Trey, but also um, in the event, because we all, always know it happens when Bogdan Bogdanovich is not there to to lead the second unit, who is that guy going to be? And so you kind of saw shades of that with DeJounte, but you didn't see enough of that for DJM. So yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what year two brings. Like you said, only 22 regular season games under Quinn Snyder last year. Now we're going to get a full season of Quinn Snyder, a guy that David knows all too well and what he's able to bring to the table and kind of pull the best out of guys. So looking forward to what DeJounte, as we call it here in the A, does in a full season two. Now we're going to take it up top. I got one more number. I came prepared. What were Trey Young and DeJounte Murray on the floor together without 
John Collins, who happens to play for the Utah Jazz now. What were Trey Young and DeJounte Murray last year when on the floor without John Collins? I'm pretty sure they were a negative, to be honest. And uh, I, I say that as maybe the leading John Collins enthusiast in in the natural universe. So I, I'm upset about that particular uh, transaction cycle. I'm going to guess it's like minus five. It wasn't good. I could say minus that right seven. Now. There you go. Yeah. With an offense in the 49th percentile, an effective field goal percentage in the 13th percentile, and a points per possession defensively in the 7th percentile. I believe it. I promise you my eyes believe it, too. Uh, Having watched that pairing without... Without John Collins defensively, and really that pairing in general defensively, it was it was an adventure. And John, as you will know soon enough, David, if you didn't already, John Collins is a good defender. He really is. No one notes this, but he's a good defender. Phil, and I, be, I well, bet Brad's therapist well, believes it too. Honestly, I'm sure there's been. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, like that. when he's not taking things off. Well, you know, David and Brad, I'll tell you guys, I honestly am not the numbers guru that you are. Sometimes it's just <laughs> the eye test for me when I'm down at State Farm Arena, and from the eye test, yes, the numbers would tell you that. They're not as good with J.C. when J.C. was off the floor. Well, in this case, it's not a numbers never lie situation. It's a numbers lie all the dang on time because I still feel like there's going to be a piece that's going to show up at the four spot this season that's going to say J.C. is still going to be better off where he is in Utah. And the Hawks eventually, once Quinn Snyder is able to figure this thing out and figure out how he can get what he needs from the four that can give him rim protection and perimeter support all at the same time, I think it's still going to work out for the better. But that's just me without numbers to back it up. Just I'm just wondering at this point, Jackson, Pat, and Philip, are you nervous? No. Not at all. About, they got to be nervous. They got to be nervous. I mean, I mean I'll, 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 I'll say this. Like, the only thing I'm, I'm nervous about the, with the Hawks is is if the if the Magic and the Hawks are in a play-in tournament, they still got Trey Young. And, and like we saw that in playoffs play out. Trey Young is still capable of winning you games by himself. And so, you know, I, I get that, you know, you don't want to be stuck in the play and grind, get that part. Uh, and, and that'd be my concern if, if, if I were Brad and I were, and I were listening to Lock the Hawks. But, you know, Trey Young still gets you pretty far. Like that, that is, you know, for all the stuff around him, single game, one game that you need to win, Trey Young's probably pretty high on the list of guys you, you want on your yeah, I would agree with you on that. And I think, too, when when you look at it, the, the question is, when it's not that Philip, when it's not Trey's night, who is that second guy who you absolutely trust? And I think DeJounte Murray wants to go back to showing everybody that he indeed can be that second guy. Now, speaking of that, Pat, there are some questions and some holes in the Bulls uh, roster that makes people say, OK, who's your first guy, let alone your second guy going into this season that you would trust to put the Bulls fate in his hands? Why is this season potentially going to be different than last year? And let me just add this piece to that as well, Pat. I find that with the Eastern Conference, and we can talk Western Conference as well, Jackson, I want to hear what you have to say about the Rockets. But I feel like with the Eastern Conference, you always have the one-two punch. The one-two punch can typically be the Bucks and Celtics, especially probably this year. But every now and again, somebody else creeps up into the one-two, right? It's the Heat that creep up into the one-two or they stay at the three. And every now and then the Sixers kind of pop in. But then, you know, it's the middling. And the Bulls seem to like get to the three and then they go middling. So I just want to know from your perspective, all things considered, 
What's going to be different this season for Chicago? Well, Billy Donovan started it off at media day. I think the number one difference, uh, at least my hope, you operate more through your big man down low who can facilitate the ball. Like, I don't know, the uh, the guy who's our president of basketball who put together the team that just won an NBA championship, you know, like like he wants you to do. Um, I think that the Bulls have... They didn't make big splashes this offseason, right? And that's the one thing with the Bulls that a lot of people look at, right? You're just going to run this thing back, but they made moves that are small tweaks, right? One thing that everybody knew about the Bulls and the number one thing Javon Carter said when he got to Chicago was uh, the easiest way to defend Chicago was you knew they weren't going to take the shot when it was open to them. So for me, right, like I think the thing is you got two guys in here and Torrey Craig and Javon Carter who are going to add to your shooting profile. The other thing that AK has done has brought, which (laughs) kind of tells you how far behind the rest of the league our team is right uh he's he's adding to the player development staff he's adding to a shooting coaches he's adding a shooting profile to what the chicago bulls want to do in the room and i think that's the biggest thing for me uh when i look at this bulls team that gives me a little bit of hope that they will move in the right direction now how far in that direction they're going to go I don't know. I'm not sitting here telling you guys that the Bulls are going to be a 50-win team by any means, but the Bulls were one of the worst teams at holding a lead last season in the second half, and the biggest problem with that was they couldn't create any bit of offense when they would have these long defensive stretches that actually looked really, really good. The Bulls would go four or five minutes, not allowing people to go score 10-plus points, but the problem Mm -hmm. is they would score six. You know, and so just changing that shot shot profile, changing how this team is going to attack things offensively. I think even bringing in the one thing Javon Carter talked about being a Chicago guy. We saw how much Pat Bev changed Zach Levine in the second half of the season, literally literally just by looking at Zach and saying, no, you're going to shoot this. I can't say the other words on the Lockdown Network. Pat Bev's got his own pot. You know what I mean? But you're going to shoot the ball, and that's what you're going to do. Javon Carter is very much the same way with that. I think that's going to be an asset to this team, just establishing that pecking order. And operating out of the post is their best case scenario because there were so many open looks when Vooch was kicking the ball out to the corner, kicking the ball out to the wing, and the Bulls just would not shoot them. So I think just honestly, a lot of times just taking the shots that are given to you is the number one thing that this Bulls team is going to try and change coming into this season. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great call because I can – given examples of times where I've seen them when they come into Atlanta and you're looking and you're thinking, okay, they've got some lockdown defense, but they locked down their own offense. So very interesting dynamic that you would see from them last year. And it'd be interesting to see um, how they kind of switch that or kind of evolve. What numbers you got, David? What numbers you got? I was like, I'm I'm, I'm hearing, I want to hear what David has on this one. A few of them, actually, you were 15 and 23 in the clutch last year. And clutch is actually one of the lowest numbers of repeating the next year. Like it's very rarely that a bad clutch, team is bad again the next year and a good clutch team there have been some exceptions recently on that so but but in general i think that's like a really good sign i think 15 and 23 was was one of the worst numbers in the league of anyone and then when you look at your your differential uh whether you should have been 15 or 23 you shouldn't have been because your overall numbers you were sick you were uh, this was really interesting. Your offensive rating in the clutch was 108.4 and your defensive rating was 108.4. So you should have been 500 in the clutch from, from your performance base, or at least the way it is. So it might be, hey, these are all, clutch is a little funky because 
you know, Brad will tell you it's changed over time. No, 100 percent. And I, I think the biggest thing with the Bulls was that there were numbers that spoke to the Bulls being a better team last year. And they just weren't. There were so many times where you would just look at this team and you'd be like, what's going on? But it was the same thing over and over again. I continually point to uh, the game where Donovan Mitchell goes off for 70. Right. I think the refs helped a lot a bit in that game. Now, listen, I, I'm that guy. Right. Like, I think the refs were really helping them out. But realistically, right. Chicago Bulls were doing a really, really good job defensively in that game the entire time. And then the second half, they couldn't buy a bucket, and all of a sudden, Donovan Mitchell got hot. That happened so many times. It happened a couple of times with the Atlanta Hawks uh, uh, last season, right? Like, the Chicago Bulls were one of those teams where you looked at them, and the numbers would tell you, okay, this team should be 500 or better, and yet they would go out there, and the performance that you would see, especially offensively, would just destroy this team. And I think that's the one thing that Billy Donovan really wanted to come into this season and change, just the confidence in, in how you're going to attack this offense. Now you have more shooters in place, so Nikola Vucevic doesn't have to be this stretch big that the Bulls have tried to turn him into. I, I've said this so many times. Uh, uh, David, you know this as well, having Larry Marketing, right? Another guy that's panned out, that didn't pan out here with the Bulls. The Bulls love to go out there and try and find shooting big men and yet they keep getting big men that can shoot and trying to turn them into something they're not. You utilize what these guys do well and you use the shooting to accentuate that. I think the Utah Jazz have done an excellent job with that with Larry Markkinen and the Bulls have done a terrible job with that with Vooch. Hopefully that's one thing that we see change this season for the Bulls. So coming up, what are realistic expectations for these teams? But first... PrizePix is the largest independently owned daily fantasy sports platform in North America. We're the most exciting and easiest way to play DFS. It's just you against the numbers. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. Now, prize picks is the most fun I've had winning up to 25 times my money this football season. You just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats and place your entry with the prize picks reboot policy. Your entries stay in play, even if one of your players gets injured for NFL games and college football, top 25 matchups. If you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Prize picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with injury insurance. So go to prizepix.com slash locked on NBA and use code locked on NBA for a first deposit match up to a hundred dollars. That's pretty cool. Seeing as though we are just a few weeks away from the NBA regular season. So get in on it, go to prizepix.com slash locked on NBA and use code locked on NBA for a first deposit matchup to $100. This is daily fantasy sports made easy with prize picks. I'll say Jackson, you might call Dylan Brooks a big move. We're just going to call it a big move for the sake of this conversation. But the, the Rockets all until the season starts. Cause exactly. And then we can find out. What he did with Team Canada was elite. You're right. We'll we'll definitely know a little bit more in just a couple of weeks. But yeah, I think the Rockets probably were one of those teams that had a lot of movement this summer. But what do you make of it when you think about the long term? Like, are those moves setting the Rockets up for success to be real? I, I know we're at the what's next episode, but maybe moving into the contenders episode next season. 
Oh, man, if, if we're talking about the Rockets potentially being contenders next season, then a lot of things have gone gloriously right this year. I do want to <laughs> highlight the fact that I am not afraid of David's numbers, whatever he wants to throw my way, because nothing can be scarier than the basketball that I've had that I've been subjected to watching the last three years in Houston. <laughs> Look, the Rockets were the NBA's tire fire for three for three straight seasons. Right. They looked like a glorified AAU basketball team at times. Yeah. No structure, no hierarchy. It was embarrassing to watch and embarrassing to cover at times. Now, this organization is taking the steps towards rehabilitating their image and bringing in the pieces that are going to achieve that, right? They go out and they get arguably a top five coach in the entire NBA landscape in Ime Odoka, a guy who is going to be able to establish his vision of culture in Houston, uh, bringing a defense first mentality and identity to this young Rockets team. And they've kind of already, they've trimmed the fat. They've gotten rid of the young guys that they didn't think should stick around. They've got their core six of key young guys moving forward in Jalen Green, Alperin Shingun, Jabari Smith Jr., Tari Eason, and now Amin Thompson and Cam Whitmore added to the pack as well. They brought in the stabilizing veteran pieces, right? You actually have now some adults in the room and that was sorely missing these last few years you had eric gordon who by all accounts is an absolute pros pro but he's more of a lead by example guy he's not a vocal guy and it's there's only one of him right your your, your veterans last year were eric gordon and boban marjanovic that's it that's not enough to help you know right the ship of a bunch of 19 20 21 year olds who don't even know who they are as nba players let alone human beings yet at this point at this point in their careers so I think the vibe that we've gotten so far through a couple days of Houston Rockets training camp and media day is it is a completely different team. It's a completely different organization. There is an urgency. There is a desire, a drive, a hunger to kind of erase and, and write the mistakes of these last couple of years, right? The young guys are talking about they're tired of all the losing. The veterans are saying and doing all the right things. Fred Van Vliet, Dylan Brooks, Jeff Green, another important veteran addition for this team are going to, I think, help elevate these young guys to a point where they can actually start playing some meaningful basketball. You're seeing leadership for the first time in Houston in a very, very long time. Leadership from the top with Ime Odoka as the head coach and even leadership that extends to Fred Van Vliet, right? He bought all his teammates these little like kind of gift bags on media day and he included a, a book in that chop, uh, chop wood, carry water. And he kind of explained that, you know, he wants the young guys to understand it, to, to fall in love with the process of becoming great. If Fred is saying and doing all the right things, the young guys have talked about how impactful he's already been as a leader in his short time with this team. And there's a lot of cautious optimism that the Rockets with just kind of addition by subtraction of getting rid of the previous coaching staff uh, of uh, obviously it's very unfortunate, the allegations uh, and deeply troubling the allegations towards Kevin Porter Jr. But he was one of the more polarizing figures within the Rockets organization these past couple of years, kind of maybe some addition by subtraction there as well. And they kind of have a clear direction now with this team, and they should be poised to take some significant steps forward with the internal growth of the young guys, the new direction and identity being brought in by Ime Odoka. And uh, yeah, Fred Van Vliet and Dylan Brooks are going to be a big part of that. Don't know if yeah. they'll be a part of the team when they're competing for championships a little bit down the line, um, but they're at least kind of the pieces that help bridge the gap. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I like those pieces for Houston as long as there's this place, the pendulum, 
just keep email doko away. That's all I'm saying. And then everything can oh, fall into man, place and be exactly be. where it needs to be for the Rockets. Hey, I lived in Houston. Relax. I know the places you should not go in Houston. I lived there for years. Just let me, saying. Jackson, Jackson, let me ask you this, right? Because I, I really feel like with the Houston Rockets, there's always been, the, at least the last few years, right? I've looked at that team and I've been like, they don't know who their best player is. It's like you said, they're playing AAU basketball. To me, the best player left of the bunch that probably doesn't get enough credit is a guy like Alperin Sengun because he knows what his shot profile is already. He knows where his strengths are and he gets to them effortlessly. How are they going to use Fred Van Vliet to accentuate what he already does well and do the Rockets know that he's probably one of their best players on the team. I think at this point, there's an understanding that Shingun is, is an incredibly talented offensive player, kind of a phenom on that end of the court. But I don't even know that they know who their best players at this point. And that's kind of one of the unfortunate side effects of the past two years is you lost some incredible. You lost a lot of developmental runway time to figure out who these players are by being so bad and having no structure, having no identity. Uh, Philip from Locked on Magic and I did a recent crossover episode where we discussed kind of the different rebuilding pathways that the Magic and the Rockets have taken. And the Magic identified and gave the runway to Paolo Bancaro and Franz Wagner. And the Magic know who their core guys are. They know that they're building around those two guys. They've cemented that. And now they're trying to figure out, okay, what pieces make sense around those two guys? The Rockets wasted these last couple of years. And now you don't know who who the best player is. You don't know, are we building around Shingun or is Jabari the guy? Or maybe it's Jalen. So Ime is tasked with not only trying to make this team a competitive team here in year one and get them back to playing some meaningful basketball later in the season, ideally gunning for a play in tournament slot, you know, hopefully. But he also has to figure out the identity of this team and who's who's going to stick around. Right. Is this team is it Jalen Green's team? Is he the best player? Is he the number one option? Maybe they lean further into Alperin Shingun. Maybe, and this was my bold prediction, I think Jabari Smith Jr. cements himself as the Rockets' best overall player by the end of the season. He had a relatively, honestly, a very disappointing rookie year relative to his expectations as being widely billed the number one overall pick. And then things you know shuffled last minute. Paolo Bancaro goes number one overall, and Jabari finds himself falling down to number three and, and coming to Houston. Had a rough rookie year, but the swagger, the confidence that he has building on his summer league performance and the way that he's looked at training camp so far, it feels like a very com- a completely different version of Jabari Smith Jr., a guy who's 6'11", maybe even 7 feet tall now, who can suddenly put the ball on the floor and create for himself something that he could not do at all in college. And he's able to do that just one year removed from Auburn, where he looks like a completely different player, driving the basketball, attacking, dunking on his teammate, Tari Eason in a scrimmage the other day. Um, You know, this Rockets team has so many questions and that's why they belong in this group, right? What can this team become? And Ime Odoka has a lot uh, on his plate to try and, you know, both make this team competitive again, but also figuring out which are the pieces to build around moving forward. Because even I don't even think they know at this point. Do you like the story that Emma Udoka blocked the James Harden deal? I do. And I actually I, and I believe that in my understanding of the situation is that was very much the case is that 
uh, Ime was brought in and he had a, a clearly defined vision for what he wanted to achieve with this Rockets team. He was incredibly uh, excited at all the young talent here in Houston, and he has an idea for how he wants to mold this team. And James Harden did not fit that identity whatsoever. And, and he's a he's a guy who spent some time with James Harden back as an assistant with the Brooklyn Nets. And he's experienced firsthand, you know, the James Harden antics, if you will, and some of the frustrations that come along with James Harden as a player, you know, the off the court stuff that you have to deal with. And even at times the on the court issues that you have to deal with. We all know it's no secret. James Harden is not exactly the guy who's going to lead by example on the defensive side of the basketball. Right. So for Ime Odoka to try and establish a defensive identity here in Houston and really expect the most out of these young guys like Jalen Green, like Alper and Shingun, how can you expect those guys to put their best for best foot forward defensively if your quote unquote best player or your big free agent acquisition in James Harden isn't putting his best foot forward defensively, right? That's why the acquisitions in Fred Van Vliet, Dylan Brooks, even Jeff Green, Jock Landale, guys who are saying and willing to do all the right things on the basketball floor is going to carry so much weight this season because you've got guys who are in positions of leadership now on this team who don't only talk the talk, but they also walk the walk. And that's going to be incredibly important for the young guys to learn these lessons and kind of erase some of the bad habits they picked up these past couple of years with no accountability, no hierarchy, no structure under the previous coaching regime. Yeah. And, and when you've got to, players, to point, like, go ahead, Philip. Oh, I'm sorry. And to that point, I just want to kind of add just add to that because like something that I thought of our conversation that I, the conversation that I had with Jackson on on, on my pod, on our pod, um, having just a coach that can give you that structure, whether your team's young, your team kind of veteran. And I think all five of us here have coaches who are really good at understanding the process and, and establishing kind of the, the identity of their teams. You know, Will Hardy obviously did a fantastic job with the Jazz last year. You know, Ime Yudoka had that great run with the Celtics for coming over to Houston, establishing what he's established. You know, you know, say what you want about the Bulls last year. You know, Billy Dot, you know, I've, I've experienced Nikola Vucevic for a very, very long time. It is tough to build a top 10 defense on Nikola Vucevic. Billy Donovan deserves a lot of credit for instilling defensive identity and, and guys like Nikola Vucevic and Zach Levine and, and, and DeMar DeRozan, who haven't always been known as great defenders. And, you know, we saw the turnaround, how Quinn Snyder was able to kind of save Atlanta season. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this coming for, you know, we'll get to Orlando here in a minute, but like the way Jamal Mosley approached the Orlando magic from, from the first day that he arrived when the team was still at the very beginning stages of its rebuild to getting Paolo Bancaro and kind of starting to bring him along. You could tell that there was a structure and an idea of what they were going to be and that everything was working toward that. When you don't have that as a coach, when, you know, kind of what uh, Houston had where you're just a babysitter, things fall off the rails really quickly. And it's easy yeah. to see guys kind of turn away from, from their potential because they, they don't know, you know, young players, especially don't know what they don't know. And they need that structure and guidance that, that a really good coach and a really good program can give them. Yeah, indeed. And as you mentioned, you know, and just kind of going back to the fact that it also helps when you have someone who has championship pedigree. So in addition to being a, a veteran and all-star, when you have that type of pedigree, I think it also makes it easier for younger players to kind of buy into what you're saying. Or like you said, Philip, in the case of the Magic, to be very confident in the young players that they're putting forth and saying, hey, we feel like we have the core of what we need. We've got Franz Wagner, we've got Paolo Bancaro, we've got Wendell Carter Jr., and we've got the core of what we want to do. And you started to see it really take shape. I had an opportunity to watch them front and center, and I was just really amazed. Like, hmm, they're a little bit more mature than I would have thought, especially 
they showed it in the second half of the season as they started to surge. So kind of what do you take away from the second half of what the Magic showed last season to kind of inform you of who they can be as a real, and I know, again, this is the What's Next episode, but <laughs> they kind of had some, they showed some shades of like at least lower tier contention in the East. So what do you kind of think we can see from the end of last year to this season? Yeah, I, I think I think the biggest thing with the Magic was just this this belief, this this knowledge of like, hey, we can do this. Um, you know, for those yes. that don't know, the Magic had so many injuries at the start of the season, and no one likes to use injuries as an excuse. But you know, essentially, all three of their main point guards were hurt at the beginning of the season. They started the year five and twenty, and, and I think you know it's very easy, especially for young teams, to really splinter off and get off to that slow of a start. You know, it's one thing to start fast or start five hundred and slowly taper off. But to kind of hit that road bump very early on, they really stuck with it. You know, they, they really believed in the kind of the defensive principles that Jamal Mosley was preaching. You know, Paolo Bancaro got a lot, you know, got a runway to make mistakes, but he was still making winning plays. And then eventually they got healthy. And, you know, the key to probably all of our seasons in this room is staying healthy. If, you know, if the, the wrong inch, the wrong eye, and a season that feels like they're going to be a playing team can suddenly become like, well, you know, we're going for SAR now. We're, we're going for SAR and, and, and going to the lottery end. Um, so getting healthy was a, was a really big deal for the Magic. And so they had all this kind of confidence built in from the things that they were able to do and, and keeping a focus on what they ultimately wanted to be, on, on what that bigger vision was. And so, you know, they had Paolo Bancaro, who's a rookie making mistakes, but still producing really well. They had Hans Wagner playing at a really high level. You know, they had Markel Fultz, who's always very hungry to prove, prove people wrong. And he really started to come into his own after he got back foot in. And then especially after the All-Star break, which was about a year after he returned from the ACL injury. Um, once they kind of got all their pieces together, they kind of realized like, hey, we're pretty talented. We're pretty talented defensively, especially. And we've got a guy that, that really does feel like we can orbit around and, and can carry us in, in games. And, and you know, rookie, he's going to learn. He's going to make mistakes. But at each turn, when it felt like the magic could splinter and say, you know, throw their hands up and say, we just don't have it. We don't have, have it at all. That's when they kind of double down on their belief. You know, I, I look back to, just as an example of this, I look back to, they played the Miami Heat uh, in, fe in February, like February 1st or February 2nd, early February, and blew a late lead in overtime and lost that game at home. And, and if you don't know, game was a very, very charging leader in, in town. Lots of Miami fans come 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 north for, for, the, for, the, for the game. They played them exactly one month later. Another, lead, another double digit lead in the fourth quarter. Jimmy Butler hit a buzzer beater to force overtime. And Wendell Carter said after the game, we're not losing this game. And they kind of put their foot down and won the game in overtime running away. Butler even walked off the court before the final buzzer sounded. They, they frustrated Miami in that overtime. And so that's the kind of growth that they saw. And they did it for long enough. They went 29 and 28 over the last 57 games. They were, I think, seventh in the league in defensive rating after December 7th, which is when the season actually started, as we all know. Um, <laughs> they went 29 and 28. They proved to themselves like, hey, we can win consistently. And that confidence, I think, is carried over into this year where they're feeling healthy and feeling a year older, a year wiser, and they think they can really do something. Philip, can I ask you a question? So you can, you can ask me a question. You can ask me anything, David, as long as it isn't, this isn't even me. Like I, I got all sorts of Paula Boncaro numbers about how yeah. his runaway rookie of the year thing was a sham, but um, cause like he won. Yes no. We he can have that. He won rookie of the year in December. I'll give you that. For the season. Like we'd already voted on yeah. the 20. Yeah, he shot 40% and like 28% from three in the final 50 games of the year. Um, like we don't, that, we don't count February, David. Okay. Okay. <laughs> But actually, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. We saw him in January as the 
as the Jazz play-by-play announcer. And then we saw him again in March. Did some, like in March, I was kind of, in January, I was like, okay, maybe. In March, the guy I watched couldn't get off the ground, didn't have much lift, and really like looked like he was having a hard time finding his shooting window. Like, did some did he did something happen? Did he just wear down? Like yes. he didn't look right to me. It's, or he didn't either look right to me, or frankly, he just didn't look like a future superstar to me in that you know it, yeah, it's 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 a little bit of both. I mean, eighty-two games is a long time. And he played I think he played seventy-five, you know, played seventy plus of them, but eighty-two games is a long time. You know, he definitely hit a rookie wall. On top of that, he had a nerve issue in in his shoulder, I believe, in February, and and that led to a lot of his shooting numbers dipping. I think he shot one for thirty-two and from three in February. And look, his numbers went down. And, you know, if there was a case against Paolo Bancaro when winning rookie of the year last year, it was his inefficiency and. Expect inefficiency from a rookie player who has a high usage rate the way that that he does, and 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 you know whether Paolo Bancaro can become a star, a superstar, a super duper star is going to come down to his efficiency. Whether he is able to sh- take a lot of shots and a lot of shots, you know, understanding what the right shot is, when the right shot, when when how to get to his spots. All that stuff that superstars go through. Um, you know, a lot of stars struggle. You know, Kevin Durant shot what 27, 28% from three his rookie year. He got, you know, he put up good raw numbers, but needed a lot of shots to get there. And obviously he's Kevin Durant. Like, you know, he you know, he figured it out. Paolo's probably not gonna get to that level um just because he's just not naturally a three-point shooter like uh, and so yeah, I, you know, there are maybe some concerns that you know, efficiency is going to be is, is the big hurdle that he has to overcome. But, you know, he definitely the wall last year. There's no doubt about it. He had a lot on his shoulders. He was carrying a lot for this Magic team. They put the ball in his hands a lot and said, go out there, make mistakes, learn what's right and what's wrong. It was a very low stake season for the Magic at, at, at the end of the day. On top of that, he had a little bit of an injury. But, you know, he started to peak a little bit. I think he started to peak a little bit maybe uh, after after that second, after that game against Utah and Orlando. Um, you know, where, you know, he had this big game against New Orleans where he scored six, you know, eight, eight points at the final two minutes, including the, including two, two huge baskets that kept Orlando in, in the lead, in the lead late in that game. You know, he showed enough signs in the pockets late in the season that it's like, okay, this is just a rookie going through mistakes. Now we'll see what happens. Cause you know, one, you know, David, you're, you're a staff, you understand Dave, David, Brad, you understand this, your staff, your stats guys. One season isn't a sample size to tell you what a, who a player is. You, you know, when I look at a rookie, I often say you're not drafting a player for his rookie year. You're drafting him for his whole for his whole career for the next five years. Now we got to see what he does to build off this rookie year and whether he starts in those pockets of efficiency. What he learned about what, what he learned about playing against defenses that are trying to trap him. You know, how he learned how to play defense. That was the biggest thing that came out of the World Cup with him was that he suddenly became a really interesting defender and and shot blocker. And so. That's that's going to be the interesting thing with Powell. Notice how David's only taken shots at the other three teams here because he knows <laughs> that he can't hurt me any more than the Rockets oh, already I'm have. Sorry, I have something for you. By all means, by this all means, actually, David. actually, in regards to what's next, like this is actually, I think, the issue for all of us. Like it's actually a little bit to what Philip just talked about. So I keep a metric that talks about how an offensive player plays with the possessions that you compared to league average. And my entire premise about the NBA still is that nobody still understands how incredibly detrimental inefficient offensive players are to teams. Like an uh, an offensively inefficient player like negates Kevin Durant stunningly fast. 
So here are the most, we are like loaded. These are like, it's our entire roster. Um, here are the most, inef- the players whose offensive impact most negatively impacted their teams last year. Okay. So guys that played at least 40 games and, and played. So Killian Hayes, not one of ours, and Terry Rozier, followed by Dylan Brooks. Hello, Jackson. Russell Westbrook. <laughs> Paulo Boncaro, hello, Philip. RJ Barrett, <laughs> Kelly Oubre, Lou Dort, Jabari Smith, Jalen Green, LaMelo Ball. A lot of Houston. Scotty Barnes, DeJounte Murray. There, there it is. Oh. Jaden <laughs> Ivey. And I just wanted to make sure I got involved. Taylor Horton Tucker. So, <laughs> like, a little bit of everybody in there. What's next is like, we got to get rid of these guys or these guys that all, either you got to get rid of guys that are incredibly negatively or de- detrimentally offensively, or they have to get better. Like all yeah. the guys I mentioned, other than Russell have a chance to get better. I think the funniest about thing about Terry all of that is the fact that the Chicago Bulls were so <laughs> – that's another stat that basically says <laughs> this team was efficient. They just don't shoot the basketball enough. Like that's literally what my team is. I wish I had answers, guys. I wish I knew why <laughs> we don't shoot basketballs enough. How far down before you get to a bull on there, David? How far down does well, it the, the, the name of the game is basketball, and the Bulls refuse to put the ball oh, in the, the basket. Listen, <laughs> You have no idea Pat, how much you're... last season I literally was just like, Billy Donovan doesn't seem to understand that tall guys are important in this game because they're closer <laughs> to the hoop. Like it's built off of like large people being close to the rim because guess what? The game we lose against Miami, you know what he does when we need an offensive rebound and three-point shooting? He sits Kobe White and Andre Drummond. What are we doing here, guys? What's going on? I'm just trying to figure that. I'm sorry. I just ranted a little bit. Don't worry about that. I'll do that with Hayes later. Let's keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pat, Pat, you don't want I'm, I'm a Gator fan. You don't want to get me started on how Billy Donovan used Patrick Young and David Lee for 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 nearly a decade. <laughs> <laughs> At least you got two championships out of it. And Joe Kim. That's true. We got Joe Kim. Well, we got a connection. in the paint, though. <laughs> we just vibed right there. We got a connection. Yeah, Joe we did. <laughs> Coming up. What questions do these teams need to answer? David has told everybody about just how inefficient some of their players are and how he can actually prove that with the numbers to back it up. Now we get to look at his squad and kind of look up and down that roster and see what he thinks is going to happen for Utah this season. Now, of course, you guys have Colin Sexton, Laurie Markkinen, Walker Kessler, Jordan Clarkson. That's kind of your starting four. The reason I gave you a starting four is because we know who could be oh, your I, fifth I, starter. I don't know that Colin Sexton's in that group. I have okay, literally let, no idea. I think our starting talk four. About that. Yeah. I think our starting four is probably Jordan Clarkson, but I'm not certain. Okay. Fair. Uh, Lowry Market and John Collins and Walker Kessler. Who else? In that guard line, I have no idea. And I actually mm. think there's a chance Jordan Clarkson could come off the bench. I, I literally have no idea in the in the real question on this team, which surprised everybody last year when they were supposed to be a, a Zach Lowe, a you know group of misfit toys, I believe is what he referred to, <laughs> that were heading to the airport to be changed in and out all season long. Was that on February 9th, this was the fourth best offensive team in the NBA, and then we traded Mike Conley, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, amongst others. 
And from that day on, we are the 24th ranked offensive team in the NBA with the 21st in shooting and 28th in turnovers. And that's what I think is unknown is like, what is this team both offensively and defensively? They have the second best rim defender in the NBA after the first for the final 50 games of the year last year. Walker Kessler moved in the starting lineup on January 10th in the final stretch of the season. He defended eight shots a game within six feet, which was the eighth most, but only Brooke Lopez defended him better. He was the second best rim defender in the league. Teams players shot 14 percentage points below average when Walker Kessler defended the shot. So like, I, I don't know if I'm really perfectly honest about this. I, I don't, I don't have any idea of, like, is this going to be an offensive team? Is this going to be a defensive team? Is it going to be a team that's distinctly average at both mm-hmm. and then actually be a little better than anyone thinks? Are they going to be – I don't know. And I think that's I think that's what's really interesting. And I really couldn't tell you who I think the 10 rotation players are. Mm. Well, David, yeah, I was thinking about that. Away, uh, I apologize. Just even going away from offense versus defense or that kind of identity, I think uh, uh, my question is: What are the, what is the goal for the Jazz this year versus being competitive versus developing all the young talent that they now have? Right? Is this a world where you throw Keontae George, George in the starting lineup and say you're getting all these, you're just going to get all these reps? I, what, so what do the you way they what did it last year with Walker Kessler and Ochai Abaji, I think tells us the answer to this story. So Walker Kessler played in and out a little bit, played well, and then on January 10th, he started the final, what, 40 games, 35, 40 games of the year. Ochai Abaji wasn't in the rotation. They sent him to the G League, He and then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, he started playing 25 minutes a night for the rest of the year. Yeah. Like, And so I think that's the model that I think you'll see. Now, Keontae George obviously had the best summer league of any rookie. Um, I think he was summer league player. That means absolutely nothing if you go over the – like Josh Shelby was the um, Summer League Player of the Year once, the same year Damian Lillard was. So let's hope Keontae Are you saying Player of the Year? Because that that honor sticks with my – Cam Whitmore was Summer League MVP. Oh, he was? Okay. Yeah, I would just just like to (laughs) clear that up. And maybe Josh Shelby. (laughs) How dare dare you? This is the most important accolade any Rocket has received in the last, like, four years. Don't take it away. I guess he was just first team. Um, but like, I think it's irrelevant because Frankie Ferrari is not playing in the NBA um, and he does play in summer league. Uh, so I, I, you know, but Keontae has been very, you know, he's obviously very good. He's supposed to have been very good in open gym and he's got a unique confidence to him, I would say. So I do think there's a chance he works his way into the rotation quickly, but if he's in the rotation, Chris Dunn, Taylor Horton, Tucker, Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, Ochai Abaji, two of them are not. Right. Unless Ochai Abaji slides to the three to back up Lowry Mark and then we get small. I thought the most interesting thing in media day was John Collins talked about playing the three, which I don't know if Brad Roland thinks he could actually do or Tanisha Batiste thinks he can actually do. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Brad, should we? Uh, OK, <laughs> but I, I did want to ask, though, Brad, and this is kind of a Brad and a David question as we kind of wrap things up, David, for you. Where does John Collins kind of fit into the identity for Utah and Brad, just based on the two that point that David just made, JC thinking he can play the three, and what David's answer is on JC's identity? Kind of where do you think JC fits in? So I just kind of want to hear from you guys both on JC. Let me give a note, and then I want Brad to tell me what it means because I think this this is the note that matters here. Mm. Okay, so last year the Hawks were one of the higher pick and roll teams in the NBA. I don't think they, I think they, they were top five, I think in running pick and rolls. Is that about right, Brad? Yeah. 
Yeah. So the Jazz were 26th in the league in pick and rolls, and they were fifth in the league in off-ball screens. So last year, the Jazz system was you're picking down for Lowry. He's coming off a low pin down, getting it on the move. He's coming off something off the elbow, getting it on the move. And we're not running this high pick and roll game where Atlanta's playing this high pick and roll game, either with John Collins or Clint Capella. And then John Collins is sitting in the corner with a usage, (laughs) as he pointed out in media day with a usage rate that was below his rookie year. He didn't seem real happy about that. Um, so if the system stays the same, like a team that was like ran like about like a post up a game and was like low in picks, 26th in the league, fifth in off ball screens, 16th in handoffs. Like, does that game complement John Collins in a way that he has a breakout season, not a la Lowry market? And I think that's tough to expect, but in some fashion. I think he's better off in that system than he was what happened in Atlanta last year. The short version of that is that I think Colin's best attribute is as actually as a pick and roll roll man, but you can't have him do that if you have a non-shooting center next to him, which is what happened in Atlanta. Once they had a non-shooting center, you can't run pick and roll and have and just have Clint Capella stand somewhere else. But I do think that Collins is better suited to that sort of attack like you just laid out than he was to, as you mentioned as well, standing in the corner and just being a spot-up shooter because between the finger and all the stuff that happened with him in Atlanta and the way that he stopped shooting the way he was shooting, the confidence was probably not there and all that stuff. So he had a much smaller role than he needs to have to have the talent that he has. So maybe he is better suited to more of a egalitarian, you know, more movement, not so kind of set in their ways, pick and roll office, especially because, again, he was kind of relegated to fifth option duty standing in the court, which is not definitely not his best role. Do you start John Collins with Walker Kessler? Now he's back in the same situation as with Clint Capella. Exit him out quickly, bring in Kelly Olenek. Now you've got another move. And let John Collins come back as the backup center against the second teams? I like that a lot. I like him and Olenek together a lot, honestly, as a as a theoretical pairing in general, kind of just contrasting the, the spacings better with Olenek. You can kind of use Collins as a, as a role man. And he hasn't had that since he had like, you know, Dwayne Dedman and Alex Lynn in Atlanta. Like it's been a long time. So uh, that would work pretty well. Also, I think Collins helps Olenek defensively because Olenek is not fantastic there and Collins can kind of cover up for him on the backside and all that stuff. I like that pairing a lot, honestly. Here's what I think is most interesting about the Jazz. I think it's the most interesting thing that's going on in the NBA. <laughs> Clearly no bias there whatsoever. No, no, no. I think this is just a whole NBA. Well, there's two things I think that are the most interesting things in the NBA. One of them we've touched on today indirectly, and that is how many teams are going to start playing a big in the high high post and have everybody slash behind them as their offense because Nikola Jokic did it. And we're going to see Vukovic do it. We're going to see Boncaro do it. I don't know how Atlanta does it. We're going to see Alfred Sengun do it, and we might see Kelly Olenek do it for us. So four of our five teams are suddenly going to change the way they play because of the fact that Denver plays a high post at the – but it really was five shoot. If you have four shooters, you're allowed to have slashing lanes behind the big in such a way that makes it really difficult to defend the floor. And that's, I think we're going to see that in the league. So that's my first one. Okay. The second one to me is the beginning of the impact of this new collective bargaining agreement, which is that there's 240 minutes of basketball a night, five players playing 48 minutes is 240. Denver has like 205. Phoenix has like 200. Boston has like 200, maybe less now. Chicago, in my books, got like 225. Like that roster's pretty solid. We we don't get hurt much. We just play through it. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's not even <laughs> just getting hurt. It's just like if you if you go look at the guys and say, yeah. just go look at everyone's depth chart and say, like, okay, you know, we're not judging who's great, right? Like, obviously, Jokic is playing 36 minutes at center and he's the yeah. best player in the NBA. 
but they they don't have a backup center on their roster right now that is a bona fide NBA player. They don't have a backup power forward on that roster that's a bona fide NBA player either. So if you look in the Eastern Conference, I've only got one team in the entire Eastern Conference I think has 240 minutes on their roster of bona fide NBA players. That's the Knicks. So what yeah. I think it's super interesting for a bunch of these teams is if a few of these guys actually become bona fide NBA rotation players, if the Bulls can finish their final 15 minutes and get it up to 240, if Philip Rossman, right, I got you at like 180 right now, but like, that's also like, there's a bunch a of guys of that, that might be, then if Jalen Suggs could actually finally play like an NBA rotation player, then that number suddenly goes to 215. Yeah. Well, we could talk about Jonathan, CBAs and aprons and rotational minutes until we just, you know, we could talk about that ad nauseum. But listen, guys, we got to go. We got to go. Hey, listen, if you want to have more of this conversation and kind of see how the CBA and aprons and everything else in the NBA impacts things, we got locked on shows on tap, on tap, on tap for you this entire season, which the regular season starts in just a couple of weeks. So, again, we thank all these guys for stopping by the preview show tonight. We'll find out soon enough what's next for all of them. And don't forget, Check out Locked on NBA and get all six episodes of the Ultimate Season Preview. We'll see you.